You'll be turning in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. We'll find ourselves there momentarily. It's good to see each of you here tonight. We have several who are visiting with us. Uh, we had several visitors this morning as well, and we're thankful for your presence with us tonight. Uh, some are here to celebrate uh, brother and sister Joyner and to send them off. We're thankful again for their years of dedicated service to God and to this congregation of God's people. And uh, Julie and I and the boys are just so thankful that we came along at a time where we were able to spend time together. Mike and Cherie should be back sometime this evening. and uh, They've been in Farmersville doing some good work there in a marriage seminar. And so I want to start tonight uh, thinking about a marriage class, actually premarital class. And a premarital counselor stood before a group of six couples, and he asked them some simple questions. He said to these couples who were looking forward to being married... Do you want to build your relationship on godly principles? A simple question for six couples. And without hesitation, all six immediately said, Yes, of course we do. That's all we want to do, is build this relationship upon godly principles. And so he asked the next question. Well, is it ever all right to modify the truth to avoid some unpleasant situation? Is it ever okay to modify the truth That's a fancy way of saying, is it ever okay to lie to avoid some unpleasant situation? And again, all six without hesitation said, no, of course not. Again, we are establishing ourselves on godly principles, and you can't have godly principles and lie. So, no, the answer is no. Yes, godly principles, no, we're not going to modify the truth. So he says, and don't you get ahead of me, he says, let me just offer a situation. Let me just give you a scenario. The counselor says, and this is, I'm not the counselor, by the way. The counselor says, my wife has given birth to four children. And over the course of giving birth to four children, her dress sizes have fluctuated four different times. And she comes to me as she is uh, losing, gaining, whatever it is, and and she says to me, Honey, is this blouse too tight? She's wearing it to church. Is this okay for me to wear? Now, he says, the counselor saying to these six couples looking forward to being married, Now, that's you in the situation. Your spouse comes to you. Is this okay or not okay? Now, I run the risk, he says, of hurting her feelings. This is the woman that I love. Do I hurt her feelings or do I tell her what's right? And now, when it comes to a tight blouse, five of the six say, avoid the unpleasant situation. Avoid the unpleasant situation and modify the truth. Don't hurt her feelings. Go ahead and modify the truth and get yourself out of this unpleasant situation. Isn't that amazing how that works? In one moment, godly principles never going to modify the truth. And in the next moment, when a scenario is played out, which doesn't even affect them, it's not even real in their lives, yes, modify the truth. Lie. Go ahead and do it. And avoid the unpleasant situation. I want to know, is that justifiable? Does God allow the situation 
to determine what is right. In other words, is there a strict moral code or does God say, go ahead and let the situation determine the ethics? Let the situation determine what is right given that, uh, that situation. Maybe ask it uh, one more way. Is it ever right to do what's wrong? Now, if I asked you tonight, if I stood up here and I started with a question, is it okay to lie? All heads would be shaking, no. Is it okay to lie? No. Should we let the situation determine whether or not we do that? I think, again, on its face, you would say, no, it's never right to do what's wrong. And yet we find ourselves in these situations where we wonder, does this situation determine or dictate what is right? Joshua chapter 2, does it come to mind? You look in your Bible in Joshua chapter 2, and verse number 1 says... Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. Chapter 2, verse number 1. They come to a house of a harlot by the name of Rahab. Don't miss what it says her occupation, former occupation, I believe, was. She was a harlot. There are some, even in the church, some scholars who want to try to change this, alter this, say, no, that can't be true. That's not who she was. That's not what she did. But my friend, you can't avoid this one. This is who she was. She was a harlot at one time in her life. It says that these men came to her home, the home of harlot, uh, Rahab, the harlot. We just had first read for a moment ago... uh, Brother Eddie read from James chapter 2. James would refer to her in the New Testament as what? Rahab the harlot. And Hebrews chapter 11, if you look over there in Hebrews 11 and verses 30 and 31, you will find the writer of Hebrews will refer to her as the harlot Rahab. There's undeniable here, something undeniable, and we're going to make a much greater uh, point here in just a moment, I hope. But the Bible doesn't hide from this, and that's my point. It doesn't hide from who she was. It doesn't hide from what she did. It doesn't hide from what she was about at one time in her life. I don't know how these men made their way to her house. I don't know how they ended up there. But I know they're thankful they did. They ended up at this home. The home of Rahab, who was a harlot. And that's what we find going on. You'll find her name another time in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5. You know what's going on in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Does it bother you that Rahab's name shows up in the genealogy of the Messiah, the promised Savior? Does that bother you that the Rahab, one who was formerly a harlot, is showing up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Now, you can dismiss that if you want, but if you let that soak in for a second, there's a much greater point that we've got to make here in just a moment. But if you're bothered by Rahab being in the genealogy, you're about to be really bothered because so is Tamar and so is Bathsheba. There's a greater point here. We're going to make it. But so is Tamar, who at one time in her life played the harlot. And there is Bathsheba, and we know about her indiscretions with King David. Isn't that right? This is who we find in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A Rahab, a harlot named Rahab. Tonight what I want to do 
is I want to examine two scriptures in particular. I want to notice two things that I think speak volumes about overall what we're dealing with, with situational ethics, but more than that, a greater point concerning Rahab and a greater, greater point concerning our God. So look at these verses with me. We're going to be looking at a, a statement that she makes down in verse number 12. But before we get there, I want to get it in context by beginning in Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 2. The spies are in the home of harlots, the Rahab the harlot. And the Bible says in verse number 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. And where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. Verse number 6 says, But she brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. 7 says, Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, for when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Rahab continues in verse 11 and says, As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. I want you to notice her words. In verse number 12, she assesses the situation. She understands who these men are and where they have come from. She understands a a little about what's about to take place. And so she says, swear to me. And she follows that up with the words, by the Lord. Swear to me by the Lord. What does that tell us about Rahab? She's a rather smart lady isn't she? I wish that I were more like her in so many ways. What we find in her is someone who is willing to weigh the evidence. Why did she ask them to spare her life? Why did she say, make me this promise by the Lord? Why did she bring God into this conversation? We're dealing with a Gentile in the city of Jericho. We're dealing with somebody who is outside of the Israelite nation. Someone who is outside of the children of God. And she says, I want you to swear to me by him. Why? Because I have weighed the evidence. And I have reached the only logical, plausible conclusion there is to reach. There is only one God in heaven. And he is the God of heaven. And he is the God of earth. And I have weighed all of the evidence and I can know that this is Him and you belong to Him and I don't. But I know that I can. And I need to. 
Brethren, what she did was weigh the evidence. Now, I want you to notice what she weighs. I want you to notice the evidence that she has because, you see, she didn't turn to the book of Exodus in her Old Testament and start reading about these events, did she? She finds herself here saying, hey, you know what? I know something about what's gone on. This is the days before telephones, the days before emails and texts and internet and snail mail even. This is days prior to that, and yet she has received information about everything that God has been doing. She says, you know what? I remember those events at the Red Sea. You see that in your Bible? I saw that in verse number 10. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. I want you to notice that she uses the word we. We heard how God dried up the waters of the Red Sea. We heard about you guys coming out of Egypt. That means that that Rahab is not the only one who had received this information, but she's the only one who's doing anything with it. Have you stopped to ask yourself, how long had it been at this time since all those events took place? Do you know how long it's been since that Red Sea was dried up? Do you know how long it's been since those people walked across the Red Sea out of the land of Egypt? Brethren, it's been 40 years since that took place. And she heard about it. And she said, I know, I know there is a God in heaven and I need to be right with Him. I need to be on His side. You think Rahab had any idea that within a few days those walls were going to come crumbling down? She must have had a hunch that something was about to go down, right? And so she did what she had to do. She weighed the evidence. She knew about Egypt and the Red Sea. She knew about Sihon and Og. And so she was ready to do something about it. Now, I'm just wanting to say this that she understood that there was something powerful about God and she was willing to look at the evidence and do something with it. Now, we'll go to Matthew chapter 5 in just a moment, but I want you to think about yourself and the way that you view the power of God. You ever stood on a mountain and looked out over creation and thought about the power of God? Maybe you haven't, but some of you have. You ever stood on a beach and looked across a vast ocean and thought about the power of God? Have you ever stepped outside your house in West Texas and watched the sun go down? Or have you ever stepped out in West Texas and watched the sun come up and thought about the power of God? Have you ever stopped to think about past events and what He did and what's taken place and thought about the power of God and how great He is? Rahab says, I have viewed the evidence, I see this is right, and I must be with him. Rahab came with baggage. A harlot. And she lied. Do you find God condoning those things? If you think that God condoned a lie any more than He condoned her former occupation, I believe you're completely mistaken, my friend. What we find here is something much bigger than harlotry and something much bigger than a lie. That's baggage, and we all have it. Which one of us is perfect in the auditorium tonight? Which one of us is without sin? 
Which one of us probably couldn't have some nickname attached to us if everybody knew about it? This is talking about the power of God. And I want you to see what he could do with someone who had baggage. This is what he could do. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. You and I, we would have dismissed her a long time ago. You and I would have said, nope, sorry Rahab, got no use for you. Rahab, I'm sorry, you've just got too much baggage. I just don't think you're going to make it. I don't think I've got any use for you. And we would have put ourselves in the place of God, and if we were God, we would have said, no. What did God say? He said, yes. He said, I've got a place for you, Rahab. You've weighed the evidence. You understand who I am. You understand that I am all-powerful. That I am the God of heaven and the God of earth. And he spared her life. And by sparing her life, she finds herself now in the genealogy of the promised Messiah. Isn't that something? Only God can do that. I want you to think about what we find going on here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5 and everything that God can do with her. Again, Jewish legend says, and I don't believe there's really any way we can prove it, but it is an interesting legend. Jewish legend says that Salmon, someone we really aren't very familiar with, we don't know anything about, Salmon was actually one of those two spies, Jewish legend says. Salmon was one of those two spies. Now you talk about quite a Cinderella story, if that happened to be true. That Salmon finds himself with his buddy, Mr. Spy number two, and they find themselves at Rahab's house. She hides them. She allows them to escape. He comes back and rescues her. They fall in love, and they have Boaz. What a story is that? I don't know how much of that might be true or not, but I do know this. Rahab is the great great-grandmother of Jesse. The great-great-grandmother of Jesse, who is the father, as you know, of King David. Only God can do that. That's what God can do. Rahab weighed the evidence and she saw that there is an all-powerful God and I must be on His side. I need Him more than I need anybody else in this life. I need to be on the side of God more than I need anything else. I'm willing to give up everything I have to be with God. And she did. I wonder how we feel. I wonder if we have that same things running through our minds. And so I, I ask you these questions. How does God feel about lying? Do we really need to answer? Okay. You know how God feels about lying, don't you? You know that He hates it. In fact, He says He hates it very plainly in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 17. He's not going to condone it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't condone it ever. Not in my life or yours. He's against it. He hates it. 
The Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse 8 that all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. I don't want to go there, and you don't want to go there. Don't lie. How about you ask Ananias, maybe Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5. Tell me, Ananias, how does God feel about being lied to? Not good. He's not going to have it. But this lesson is not about lying. It's really so much more than that, brethren. This has everything to do, friends, with our approach to God. This has everything to do with our picture of Him. I don't know how you feel about the Bible. I don't know what your approach is to life. But I do know that if you open your Bible only to try to find a way of justifying your behavior, if you open the Bible only to find a way of justifying sin, you might as well close your Bible and leave it closed. It's not for the purpose of finding what I can get away with. You don't open your Bible to find out, hey, how close can I get to the edge without actually going off? If that's your approach to God and that's your approach to His Word, then something needs to give. What is your approach to God? Brethren and friends, we simply must never go in search of an excuse for sinful behavior. Just don't go in search of an excuse for sinful behavior. Just give up sinful behavior. Rahab did. Rahab was not an Israelite. Do I think God condoned the lie? I don't. I'm standing before you telling you hates lying. He doesn't condone lying. But I also understand that this is a God who understands this is a Gentile who doesn't get it, who doesn't know everything yet, but she knows something about me and she knows that she needs me. She was a harlot. God could forgive that. She lied. God could forgive that. She has baggage. So do I. Please, let's not go in search of an excuse for sinful behavior. Let's not open the Bible and say, what verse can I use to kind of wiggle around and squirm around and still remain in this uh, situation which I don't find uh, any way of being right? How about this attitude instead? Let's just pursue holiness. Let's stop trying to find excuses for sin and let's just try to be like God. Let's just pursue holiness. You see, at the end of the day, we're, we're really, as we talk about situational ethics, can I let the situation dictate what I'm going to do, even if it's sinful? The answer is no, a thousand times no. I don't allow anything. I don't allow an excuse to come in to behave in a way that God doesn't approve of. And I'm not going to turn in His Word to find an excuse to do it. I'm simply going to pursue holiness. I'm going to weigh the evidence, and I'm going to choose to be more like God. I'm just going to pursue holiness. How about you tonight? This sermon is not about finding the excuse for sin in every reason 
to pursue God and holiness. Have you weighed the evidence tonight? Have you weighed the evidence in your life? Have you come to the same conclusion that Rahab did? That you need God. You need Him in order to be saved. You must be right with Him or you're going to be destroyed. Have you weighed the evidence and seen that there is an all-powerful God? He is the God of heaven and the God of earth. He has placed within you a soul that's going to live on for eternity. Have you weighed the evidence and are you ready to respond? Won't you tonight? Come in faith, repentance, a willingness to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. And you can be one of His. Perhaps tonight... You've been trying to find excuse for sin, not really pursuing holiness. And tonight, if you need to repent, or you just need the prayers of the congregation, we stand ready to help you any way that we can. Won't you come? While together we stand, and while we sing.